Good morning. Great to see half your faces again. It's very nice. It's good to be together. It truly is. Praise the Lord. I'm going to ask if you have a copy of the scriptures with you this morning to take it, to open it up. And it's good to see you taking your Bible and opening it up for the first time in a while. And find your way to Matthew chapter 7, please. Matthew chapter 7. We come this morning to the end of what is commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. And what we're going to find is that as Jesus ends this sermon, he brings it to a close in really a way that only Jesus can. He brings it to a close in a way that brings clarity and conviction all at once. It brings hope and help, warning and wisdom all rolled into one. It's how you end a sermon. And we're going to enjoy that together. Uh, today we're going to study verses 13 through 27 of Matthew chapter 7. But I want to begin this morning at the end. And so as you find your way to Matthew chapter 7, please skim your finger all the way down to verse 24 in the final four verses of this discourse that Jesus is teaching. As we come to the final four verses, what we're going to find is really the end product of the sermon. It's the end product. It's what he wants to end with. It's what he is setting before his hearers that they can take with them and apply. It's this end product that we're going to find in a moment here in this very well-known passage is an unshakable life. That's what he's offering to his hearers and us by extension. It's an unshakable life. Look with me at verse 24. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 and following. Jesus says this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. You'll notice that in both of those cases, the house's strength, the foundation's fidelity, and even the wisdom of the builder in both cases did not affect the weather. Right? In both cases, the storms came. In both cases, we're told, the rains fell. The floods came, the winds blew, and they slammed against those houses. Strong word. And there's no indication in either case that either builder, either homeowner caused the storm, but both had to endure it, didn't they? They hunkered down and relied on the strength of the house that they had built. Now, I don't think I need to convince anyone in here that life is full of storms. That life is full of storms, many of which we don't cause, but we are forced to endure. The rain of depression, of fearfulness, of loneliness, that rain falls, doesn't it? The flood of, of personal sin, of family tension, of relational uh, fracturing, those floods, they come. The winds of, of cultural imperfection and, and societal pressures and, and godless culture around us and the pressure on Christians, those winds, they, they blow. And all of that together slams against our houses from time to time. It slams against our lives. And again, we're not causing it, but we are forced to endure those storms. In fact, so common is this experience, this experience of storms in our life, that it's not a stretch for me to assume that every single person in here and every person watching online 
is recovering from, going through, or anticipating, preparing for a coming storm. And some of us would say, all three at once. I feel like I'm coming out of one, one is hitting, and then I know that one's coming down, coming down the pike. And so all three at once, and it's overwhelming, and these storms, they, they swirl around us and hit our lives. Now, as Jesus closes this of his most famous sermons, he acknowledges that such trials, such trials are inevitable. But he also adds there that being overcome by them is not. Right? Being overcome by those inevitable storms, it isn't a necessity. It doesn't have to happen. Yes, we saw in that closing illustration, the, the winds knocked the foolish man's house down. His life could not withstand the chaos swirling around him. But the house built by the wise man, it stood strong, didn't it? His life, while probably showing signs of wear and tear from the storms around it, his life stood as strong that day as it did before the first raindrop fell. It stood strong. And I think it's safe to assume we want to be the wise man, don't we? We want to build strong lives. We want to build unshakable lives. That when the storms swirl around and they hit our houses, we can be confident knowing how that house was built, how that life was built, and what it is built upon. We want to build lives that can withstand the, the concerning diagnosis or the, the heartbreaking disappointment or the abusive experience and everything else, everything else that's unforeseen. We want to build lives that when they come, it will not teeter and fall. That's what we want. We all want that unshakable life. And, and that's what Jesus is offering as the end product of this sermon. As he comes to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he has this illustration. He says, here's two lives. And it's, it's kind of a foregone conclusion. Which one do you want? Do you want the foolish man's life that falls apart, or do you want the wise man's life that stands strong in the midst of the storms? And we say, ah, uh, the, strong, the strong house. Yes, please. That's what we want. So now that we've seen the end product, where we're going, let's back up now to verse 13. And we'll go to the back of the top of our text, and we're going to kind of, in a way, reverse engineer this end product. I mean, how do we get to a place where we can build an unshakable life? And starting in verse 13, we're going to find that Jesus gives three steps Three steps that we must take if we want to build the type of life that can withstand the inevitable storms that swirl outside. So when we come to verse 13 and 14, we find this first step. Step number one is that we have to choose the right path. We have to choose the right path. Verse 13 says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So if we want to build this unshakable life, Jesus says there's two paths you have to choose from. Choose wisely. One is a wrong path. It's wide. And the gate leading to that path, it is obvious. And here I think he's talking about, again, the default nature. It's just the most obvious path in life. It's where most of us land if we're not intentional. Uh, it's, it's wide, and, and if you travel on this path, you're going to have lots of company. Right? You're going to have conversation partners along this path of life. In fact, what does he say? He says, there are many who enter this gate and travel this path. And again, context is king. So in the context of the sermon, what's he talking about here? Well, I think he's talking about worldly living. He's talking about anything other than the standard of righteousness that he has been presenting throughout this sermon. If you live under God's standard of righteousness, you will not walk this wide path. But if you walk on the wide path, you'll have lots of company. It's, it's living under the yoke of any other form of authority other than the Lord's. It is broad and it's wide. And notice where it leads. There's one place that it leads. It says it leads to destruction. That's where it goes. Now there's a right path. 
Remember, there's two paths. One is the wrong one. It's wide, it's popular, it's well-traveled, leads to destruction. The right path, though, on the other hand, it's narrow. Right? We, we, and it's found through the, the small gate. And because it's the less obvious choice, it's harder to find. And I think maybe it's, it's harder to consistently journey along, perhaps. Because of that, Jesus says there are, there are few who find this one. This path, again, in the context, is the true righteousness that which Jesus has been outlining in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And remember here, it's important to remember who he is primarily talking to. In chapter 5, verse 1, and we've come back to this over and over again in this series on the Sermon on the Mount, at least. In chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Jesus went up on the mountain and his disciples came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. Now, at this point in the sermon, no doubt crowds have started to swell again. They found him. They started to gather around. But again, primarily, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and telling them, you must live, you must strive to live righteously. And here's what righteousness looks like according to God. You know, Israel in the first century had misunderstood it. They had misunderstood. They misapplied the law. And he says, no, it's so much higher than you even know. You must strive to live righteously this way. He's mainly talking to his disciples and he's presenting them. We need to remember this kingdom ethic. We've used that term many times over the last number of weeks as well. He's saying, here's what participants in the kingdom look like. And we are to strive to embody that kingdom ethic, even though we know we won't actually embody it until the kingdom comes. But in the meantime, we strive for it. We strive to embody it because it glorifies our coming king. So Jesus says to them, if you hear me, if you believe me, if you apply what I'm saying about true righteousness to your lives, you'll be traveling a path that leads to life and not destruction. And I think here, based on the context, that Jesus is not primarily talking about eternal life and eternal destruction. I don't think that's in view here, primarily. I think he's talking to his disciples and saying, if you want to live a life that strives to embody this true righteousness that I'm putting before you, it leads to life, life abundant, blessings from the Lord. I mean, the Old Testament is full of that in Psalms and Proverbs. The godly man receives blessings. It will be well with you. But if you travel down this other path where you maybe put on the yoke of the world and you ignore this true righteousness that I put before you, it's going to be heartbreak. It's going to be destruction. It's going to be trials. It's going to be difficult. And remember, speaking to his disciples, and we know just by, uh, by personal experience, there are some people who are believers who have trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation, and yet at a, for a season of their life, they wander down the wide path, don't they? We know that that's real. In fact, some of us, if we took a poll, would say, I've been on, I'm familiar with that path. You know, I haven't spent my whole life on the narrow path. And we know, Jesus is just saying here to believers, if you want to build a life that is unshakable when those storms come, you need to be traveling this narrow path. You need to be pursuing godliness. You need to be pursuing true righteousness. That leads to life. That leads to life abundant. That leads to blessings. The alternative, the wrong path, it leads to destruction. And so we need to choose the right path, according to Jesus. That's step one. Here's a good spot for us to back up as 21st century Christians to just ask ourselves the self-diagnostic question. Which path am I on? Which, which gate have I entered through? Do I strive to align myself with God's standard of righteousness, righteousness by the power of the Holy Spirit? Or, or honestly, do I, do I follow my own? Do I practice kind of the buffet-style obedience that is common in the world today? At the moment, whatever feels right, that's just kind of how I'll dictate my actions. 
And when I ask the question, even of myself, which path am I walking? I need to understand that I won't walk either path perfectly, not even the, the narrow path, right? Where I'm still fallen. But generally speaking, am I striving to pursue this righteousness that Jesus has presented here? That's what he's asking. And we need to ask ourselves that as well. Which path am I walking? If I'm honest with myself, which path am I primarily spending my days upon? The pursuit of true righteousness or the pursuit of some other form of righteousness? Remember in the first century here when Jesus is speaking, Pharisees are around. Right? So the, the wide path I don't think is necessarily easier all the time, to be honest. The yoke of the Pharisees that they put on first century Israel was not easy. It had all sorts of laws, all sorts of little things that they had to follow. It was still wrong, though. It did not lead to life. It led to destruction. So we need to ask ourselves as well, which authority am I submitting to? Is it Jesus or is it some other form of authority? And I have to be honest with myself. If part of me is on this wide road, again, I want to be very clear. I'm not sacrificing eternal life. But I certainly am weakening the foundations of my house. That's what he's saying here. Disobedience for the Christian is like moisture in the concrete and termites in the walls. You can't see it on the outside necessarily. If you're curb shopping for a house, man, that house looks great. I could see myself living there. I could see my kids growing up there. I could see retiring there. Oh, that, man, that looks beautiful. It's got the porch. It's got everything I need. But then a closer inspection, you get inside and you realize this is years from falling down. Termites have done a number inside the drywall. You know, there's cracks everywhere. That's what disobedience in the Christian life does. For a while, it looks fine. For a while, from the outside, curb shopping for Christians, you say, wow, that looks like a righteous life, but you get closer upon closer inspection, and, and disobedience has whittled away the security of the foundation, and the storms come and bang, hits the ground. That's the danger. Jesus says, you want to build a, a strong life, a life that is unwavering, unshakable, and the first step is to pursue righteousness, to choose the right path. And let's be honest, this is a day-after-day decision, isn't it? It's an hour-after-hour decision. I need to decide to follow Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, as we move on in the text, we find that that doesn't even guarantee uh, an unshakable life. So I'm following righteousness. I'm going after the Lord. I want to be, with everything I am, I want to be more like Christ. And yet even that, according to Jesus, doesn't guarantee that my life can withstand the storms. Look as we come to step two. Step one is, is to choose the right path. Step two is to listen to the right voices. Listen to the right voices. Look at verse 15. Jesus says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. These are people who look like Christians. They look like God-fearers. They look good for them. They look like sheep. They... They speak for God. That's what they're saying. That's what a prophet is, right? Thus saith the Lord. They pretend to care about the good of God's people and the exaltation of God's glory. But, but while they look like they belong to the flock, they're actually, Jesus says, hungry predators. And when they're allowed to remain, they attack and wound and kill the true sheep. Jesus says, if you strive, if you want to strive to build an unshakable life, you got to beware of these false prophets, for they will tear your house down like the big bad wolf. Off and puff, and down it comes. And be careful of these false prophets. We need to understand that unbiblical teaching, even if it is somewhat biblical, that has some other little additives or some other su subtractions, right? There's some things left out. 
The person of work of Christ is compromised. The atonement is sidestepped. Uh, eternal judgment is avoided. I mean, the, the number of examples of unbiblical teaching, we could be here till kingdom come, to be honest. But this unbiblical teaching, the reality is it steals what is necessary for the unshakable life. It steals the hope and the joy and peace that we need. So when the storms come, we can endure those storms. It takes those away. Instead of building our house on the rock so that it can withstand, the false teachers come in and they slowly replace that rock with a paper mache stage prop. So it looks like a rock, but then when the storms come, bang, the house falls down because it's not stable. That's what unbiblical teaching does. It, it, it subtly replaces what is stable with that which is anything but. And Jesus says, beware of these false prophets. This is serious, serious stuff, he says. If you want to build an unshakable life, be careful of these. They look like sheep, though. So we say, well, what do we do? Well, thankfully, Jesus tells us how we can identify them as we keep reading. Verse 16, you will know them, speaking of the false prophets, by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, and the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every, true, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Now, fruit is idiomatic, referring to a, a final product, right? what is ultimately produced. And in scripture, it often uses, scripture often uses the word fruit to describe the heart made observable. What's inside that comes out and it's made observable and sometimes tangible and measurable. And that can be in actions, how we live, but it can also be in our words, what we say. That comes out of the heart as well. In fact, when we go later in our study in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus explicitly marries the fruit with the words spoken. Now, I, th I think in Matthew 7, he's referring to both. Because you'll notice in verse 20, he says, plural, you will know them by their fruits. I think we're talking about both actions and words. So how do we know if these, these prophets are false prophets, these false teachers that can tear my house down? How do I know? Well, watch them. Watch their life and watch what they're saying. Be aware of their words and their life, what they say and how they behave. Examine those things. That's how we know. If someone claims to speak for God, by the way, that's a serious, serious activity to say, thus saith the Lord. You go back to the Old Testament and you know what the punishment was for someone who said, thus saith the Lord, and they weren't from the Lord? It was death. That's how serious God takes it. Now, if someone claims to speak for the Lord, you know, they may carry a Bible. They may stand behind a pulpit. That's a little nerve wracking. Easy. <laughs> they may enjoy a popularity among Christians, to be honest. They may speak at conferences. They may have book deals. They may be on Right Now Media, whatever the case may be. You know, that does not necessarily mean they are not false. We need to understand that this is a serious thing. We must ask, though, whoever this teacher is, if someone says, thus saith the Lord, open your Bibles. Here, I have a message for you from God. When someone says that, we, we have to ask. It's our responsibility to ask as believers, are they for real? That's the question. Are they for real? And how do we determine that? Well, we watch their life and we watch their teaching. Is what they're saying, is it going to help build me up? Is it going to help me build an unshakable life and help me stay on that narrow path? Or are they just biding their time before they tear me apart? 
as the wolves that they are. Jesus says here, look at their fruit. You know, what do they say? It is what they say. I don't, I don't care if they have a Bible with them, to be honest. I don't care. Many, many atrocious things have been done with people holding a Bible and spinning it to match their own personal agenda. So this doesn't guarantee everything. This is why at our church, when we say, please turn in your Bibles, it's not a platitude. We actually want you turning your Bibles and full on. Is what is coming from this pulpit consistent with what's here? If not, don't listen. There's a lot at stake here. Do you want an unshakable life? Do I want an unshakable life? We need to guard our ears. So is it consistent with what the Bible is saying? We need to scrutinize the teachings we listen to, not, not maliciously, but intentionally, certainly, because, again, there's a lot at stake. Also, Jesus is saying, what's their life? What does their life look like? You know, how, is how they live consistent with what they say, which is consistent with God's word? Um, I'm not saying perfection. I'm not saying they, when they call you to holiness, if they're not perfectly holy, cast them aside. That's not what I'm saying, but I think you know what I mean. Is there a consistency? Are they, are they pursuing the same things? We talked last week about hypocrisy and judging within the body of Christ. Are they at least pursuing the same things that they tout and proclaim? Now, I'll be really candid. This assumes that you know the teacher to a certain degree, doesn't it? I mean, how can you watch their life if you've never met them before? This is another place where we, we review and we just say, if we want to build unshakable lives, Jesus here is telling us that we must listen to the right voices. And there are countless examples of people who by not being cautious with their ears find their houses built on sand or paper, paper mache rocks. They didn't know it until the storm came and the thing fell over. Be very cautious. So now we stop and we ask, check in with ourselves. What teachers am I listening to? What voices do I allow to inform my Christian walk? Am I inspecting their fruit? Am I testing them by carefully considering what they say and what they do? We've got to guard our ears, brothers and sisters. Now, I won't speak for the other men who stand behind this pulpit from time to time, but I know myself. I know at this stage of my life, my strengths and my weaknesses, or I think I do. If not, Patricia helps me. I know that there are preachers out there that are more skilled, more eloquent, easier to listen to. I know that. I listen to them too. And it brings me joy, sincerely, when I hear that the members of Oak Ridge Bible Chapel between Sundays are consuming the content of godly Bible teachers. I love that. But I also want to tell you there's one thing I have that none of them do. I'm here. I'm here. And not only can you examine my teaching with an open Bible, you can watch my life, as scary as that is for me to say. That's why the scriptures say, not many of you become teachers. <laughs> You'll be held to a higher account. But you can watch my life. You can't do that with people out there. Glean from them all you can, but be discerning. But you can watch my life and make sure that what I'm saying is being played out at least a little bit consistently in my life. You can hear this as an invitation, I suppose, to not only rake everything I say over the coals of biblical truth, but also come close to see how my family is and see how we behave. Again, this, this is a serious thing, these false teachers. We're dealing with lives that are either shakable or unshakable when the storms come. We want to be cautious, as Jesus is warning us here. Well, false teachers, be careful. 
brethren, be careful, brothers and sisters, how we guard our ears. Don't give our ears to just any teacher. Be very cautious. Now, building an unshakable life, it means choosing the right path, as we've seen, and, and listening to the right voices. However, there's a final step here. I said there were three. Here's the third one we come to in verse 21. Step three, trust the right measurements. Trust the right measurements. Uh, continuing from his warning about false prophets, Jesus says this in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Now, just before we keep reading, notice Jesus pointing ahead and saying there's a coming day of judgment where he will be judge. Right? Did you notice that? So it gets even more clear as we keep reading. Many will, future, say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. In Greek, this is emphatic. I, I never at any time knew you. And the knew there is intimate. I never knew you intimately. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So we, hear, we see here that on this future day of judgment, when, when Jesus is sitting in the judgment seat, there will be a group of people, maybe including some of those false prophets he's talked about, those wolves in sheep's clothing, but there will be a group of people that will receive the devastating news that they measured their lives wrongly, that they did not measure their lives in the right way. And because of that, they'll be sent away. Depart from me. I never knew you. These people, it's amazing because they seem to say the right things, don't they? Lord, Lord, there's fervency there, Lord. And they did the right things, it seems like. Anyway, they prophesied and cast out demons and performed miracles all in Jesus' name. I mean, my resume does not look that shiny. But therein lies the reason for their rejection, right there. They stand before the judgment seat and present their impressive religious resumes, expecting entrance, not realizing that they've missed the one thing necessary to come into the coming kingdom. Go back to verse 21, in the second half of verse 21. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter it. As impressive as this resume was, and as we read through the New Testament, we find that prophesying, casting out demons, performing miracles were done by people who didn't know the Lord. Right? Demons cause these things as well. But they're standing before the Lord and saying, look at all we've done, but they're missing the one thing the Lord requires, the will of the Father who's in heaven. Now, a follow-up question would be, okay, what's the will of the Father? Right? I, I want to make sure on that day I, I'm not cast aside. What is the will of the Father? Now, I'm going to ask you to turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And if you're in the habit of writing your Bible, highlighting Now's the time. John chapter 6, verse 40. Important, important verse. Remember the question, what is the will of the Father? Because he says, he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Well, I want that. John chapter 6, verse 40. Jesus says, for this is the will of my Father. Okay, so there we go. Question, answer. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. What's the will of the Father? For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. The will of the Father is that we believe in Jesus, the Son of God, the promised and coming King, the Savior of sinners, the resurrection and the life. That's the will of the Father. 
See, those who will be sent away from his presence at the judgment seat, those who will say, will hear the words, depart from me. They had these resumes. They did all this religious stuff, but they didn't do the one thing that secured entrance to the kingdom, the will of the Father. They didn't believe in the Son. So really, all that religious stuff is useless on that day. Nothing. It amounts to nothing. All that exhaust, you might as well just live however you want. Don't try to do this religious trapping things if you think that that's going to gain you entrance into the kingdom. Jesus says, no, 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 no. You've measured your life wrongly. You've measured your life in the wrong way. No, they, they, and these people that are sent away from him, they measured their, their worthiness, the worthiness of their lives based on what they did and not on what Christ did. And what Jesus, the Son of God, did, that's the only measurement worth trusting. So when we live our lives knowing that we will one day stand before the king and the judge to have our lives evaluated or measured, and we know that they will be perfectly rewarded by a perfectly all-knowing judge, the question is, will I try and impress him with my resume? Man, I attended church almost every week even with a mask on. That's how much I love you, Lord. I hate it and I did it anyway. You know, I gave to the poor. I tithed. I did blank, blah, blank, blank, all these things. I look at this resume that I put together. Are you not impressed? You say, I had, there's one thing. You want to be in the kingdom? The will of the Father is one thing. You know the Son and you believe in him. That's it. That, will we say that? Will we try and impress him with our resume, or will we simply point to Christ's resume and says, I trusted in his righteousness. That's all I know. See, we're to strive to, for righteousness today, right? I mean, the Sermon on the Mount is about this standard of righteousness that we're to pursue. But as Christians, we know we pursue righteousness out of the, the, the gratitude of knowing that we will be in the kingdom, that the Christ's righteousness has been imputed, has been shot into my filthy account. And when I stand before the judge and he says, why should I let you into my kingdom? I'll say, honestly, me, you shouldn't. But I'm with him. And he's perfect. Really, we'll be pointing back at the judge because it's him, isn't it? Your righteousness is on me. You are my resume. You are my entrance into the kingdom. That's the measurement I'm trusting in. Nothing else. The rest of this I do, the pursuing righteousness I do because I'm so thankful for the realities I have and that my future is certain. And so I just want to show you off. I want to pursue you because it pleases you. I want that life. I don't want destruction. And so I pursue it out of gratitude. That is the message of grace, brothers and sisters. We don't work to gain acceptance. We work because we are accepted. We pursue righteousness. That's why. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. Do we not sing that? So we come to the end of this, this building plan, and we see that step one, we're to choose the right path. Step two, listen to the right voices. And step three, trust the right measurements. And when we do that, when we do those steps by God's grace, when we follow his directions, where do we end up? Back at verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. If we want to be a people who build unshakable lives, not, not lives that never see a storm, 
we want to be a people who build unshakable lives, lives that can withstand these storms, we have to be a people who build wisely, build our lives wisely. And he has shown us the path to that. We need to follow the Lord's gracious directions. We need to pursue righteousness and be on guard against false teachers and, and trust in the work of Jesus and not our own. That's how we build wisely, according to the Lord here in this passage. I'll encourage you this week, you know, as, as you go about your week, as you go to work, as you go to school, as you go about the chores at home, just ask yourself the question, where am I at in this building process? What step would I be on if I had to put myself somewhere? Where am I here? Where am I stumbling? Is it in my pursuit of, of righteousness? Maybe if I'm honest, I, I'm not even on that narrow path. You know, I, 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 I like the wide path. I got company there. It's easier to find that path. If I'm honest, maybe I spend more time on, on that path than the narrow one. And if that's you, if you reflect this week and the Holy Spirit prompts you and says, you know, I, th- I think you need to align yourself with the call of righteousness to go toward life and not destruction. If that's you, I encourage you, if you're not in the habit, find a traveling companion. Remember, it can be a lonely, hard road when you're on this narrow path alone. But to find a companion that you can talk about these things with and say, oh, I'm struggling to pursue righteousness here, that can be a huge difference. And that's why he gave us the body of Christ. Or maybe you're reflecting in your life and you say, no, I think I'm pursuing righteousness for the most part. I mean, I stumble here and there, but for the most part, I, I understand I want that. I truly want to, uh, to follow the Lord. But, but honestly, I've I got to be careful with the teachers I'm, I'm giving my ear to. Maybe you're, I mean, we're in a day and age where we can listen to stuff all day, every day at triple speed and never exhaust the resources that are out there right now, right? Praise the Lord. That's a great Resource at the same time, in with the good also comes the wolves. Inevitably, they come along with it. And so maybe as you're thinking this week about this building plan, you say, no, I think I'm pursuing righteousness, but I do listen to a lot of stuff. Maybe I need to be more discerning about what I'm giving my ear to. And if to you, if that sounds like an overwhelming task, you think, how am I to know? Who am I? I mean, they got all these letters behind their name. They, they, they're, they're saying all these things. Who am I to judge what they're saying? If that is overwhelming to you, then please find a brother or sister in Christ. Get them to help you with it. Call the elders. That's part of the job of the elders is to protect the sheep from the wolves. And so if you have any questions about some of the things that you're taking in, the, the books that you're reading, whatever, don't hesitate to ask. We would love to help you navigate those those tricky waters. So maybe that's where you're at. You just say, I need to be more discerning with what I'm listening to. Or maybe, if you're honest, you're, you're good on those two first two steps, but if you're honest, uh, you're trusting the wrong measurement in your life. And maybe that may, may mean for the first time, you've never actually trusted Jesus for eternal life, that he died for you and rose from the dead. And by trusting him, you are with him. You have eternal life. And you will stand before him and say, it's your, your resume I'm counting on. If that's you, then you need to do that today. I pray that you do. But maybe you're a believer, and, and, but over time you've, you've fallen for the lie that all of this stuff that you're doing, it impresses the Lord somehow. You know, he's going to be so pleased with it. And you're trusting the measurement of this, this resume that you're building. I just beg you to, to realize that it's Christ's resume that frees you to pursue righteousness, not the other way around. It's a beautiful truth. And so I... I I ask that you would pray about that this week and say, Lord, help me to realign my life and measure my worthiness, measure my, my acceptance, my worth before you by your standards and not my own. My resume, pff, it's nothing. But Christ's resume is everything. You know, so ask yourself this week, and maybe at some point this week, just scan back through this passage we've just, we've just worked through. Renew your mind. Think through this building project. And just ask yourself, where am I? Where am I at in this building project? I want an unshakable life. 
The storms are coming. For some of us, we're saying, yeah, no kidding. It's been here for a while. Uh, I feel like there's no, there's no clouds parting on the horizon in my life. I don't know what you're talking about. It's just a constant storm for me. It's never too late to build strong, to strengthen that foundation, even in the midst of a storm. Go back to these three steps. Ask the Lord to help you navigate these three steps and build that life unshakably. You will thank me. Thank the Lord better yet. Your family will thank the Lord. Your community will thank the Lord. Your church family will thank the Lord. If we have strong lives, unshakable lives, depending on the Lord, it's good for all. That's what the Lord offers us here as he comes to the end of his sermon.